Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smeiser de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Welcome to the Paseo Podcast, everyone, and thank you for downloading this episode. We are happy you are here. If you're joining us for the first time and like what you hear, please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Paseo Podcast. Those are all good ways to reach out to the show. Also, leave us a comment and rating on whatever streaming platform you are listening to this on. We're currently at five stars right now on Apple Podcasts, so definitely want to keep that momentum going. It makes a world of difference. So if you have a moment to leave a nice comment, leave a strong rating, it goes a long way. So a lot has happened these past two weeks. In case you missed it, the United States wasn't the only place on Earth with an election two weeks ago on November 3rd. Puerto Rico also had an election the same day. So, we're going to discuss the results of the election and take a quick run through the history of Puerto Rico political parties. Both of these topics are rich with information, just like our conversation last week with Erika Gonzalez from Power for Puerto Rico on the Puerto Rican electorate here in the United States. So, for this episode... We've reached out to Michael Rodriguez. He's the assistant professor of sociology and Latina Latino studies at Northwestern University and Eduardo Ortiz. He's a returning guest to the show and is a recent grad of the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. So we've invited them both on to help make sense of all of the Puerto Rico election results, taking the deep dive on uh, Puerto Rico political parties. So happy to have them. Uh, but before we get into our conversation with Michael and Eduardo, just wanted to give a shout out to Block Club Chicago for a feature they wrote about the Paseo podcast. It was a really nice article that I think captured what we are trying to do here with the podcast, and that's highlighting Puerto Rican stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. We have a beautiful spectrum of Boricuas doing great things, big and small, so Really appreciative of Block Club Chicago giving us a platform to share what we are doing in helping bring these stories to life. I'll make sure to drop the article link in the show notes, so definitely give it a read when you get the chance. Looking forward here, we are taking next week off for the holiday, but don't worry, because this is one of our longer episodes, clocking in at double the length of our weekly ones. I know our sound editor, Richie, was really grateful to see how long this episode was, especially as he's uh, currently in finals and juggling a number of really cool projects. So really appreciative to him uh, for really uh, being heads down on this uh, and helping us churn out this episode. Because honestly, we are going to cover a lot of ground on the history of political parties and the recent Puerto Rico elections today. So I hope this holds you over until then, um, especially until we meet up in two weeks. So as always, Hit us up in the comments or shoot us a DM to let us know what you think of this episode. Now, let's jump into the interview with Michael and Eduardo. Bienvenidos a todos. This is the Paseo Podcast. It is November 12th, but that doesn't really matter because you're not listening to this on November 12th. 
Uh, this is a podcast, so wherever, whenever you're listening to this, ultimately, we are just happy you are here for this conversation with us today. On this week's episode, we are talking about the Puerto Rico elections and Puerto Rican political parties. So joining with us today are Michael Rodriguez, Assistant Professor of Sociology and Latina Latino Studies at Northwestern University, and Eduardo Ortiz, a returning guest to the podcast. Uh, so after you're done listening to this, definitely listen to our episode with Eduardo uh, talking about the Iowa caucuses. And uh, he's also a recent graduate from the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Michael, Eduardo, welcome to the show. How are you both today? Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Super happy you both are here. Um, what should our audience know about you both? I know I gave a little intro, but Michael, why don't we start with you? What should our audience know about you? Born and raised in Chicago. Cook County Hospital baby way back when, when that was in existence. Um, I've been uh, working in and around the Humble Park community for a number of years, with the exception of an, about six years away doing grad work. Yeah, just involved in, in the community, anti-gentrification work, work to free Puerto Rican political prisoners, things like that. Thanks for that. Eduardo, what about you? Um, so yeah, I am originally from Puerto Rico. I moved to Chicago about three years ago to pursue grad studies. I originally was doing research in uh, Puerto Rico's economic history and then uh, graduated from the University of Puerto Rico and then went to do grad school at the University of Chicago, where after getting to Chicago three days after Hurricane Maria, I, I really uh, began to get active in, in the Puerto Rico-Chicago community. Uh, working with the Puerto Rican Agenda and with the Segundo Riz Belvis uh, Cultural Center, um, where I'm currently part of the board there. Um, and then just generally, I just work in, in activist circles, raising awareness about the issue of Puerto Rico um, from different lenses. Nice. Great. Well, thank you both for being here again. Um, it's a big topic we're talking about today, um, and I will be fully transparent. Uh, I don't think I've taken this much of an interest in Puerto Rico elections that wasn't around some type of referendum that that was being voted on in an obscure election year. Um, so I, I think I'm falling to that category within the diaspora of there's too many uh, points of separation between being very in tune on the intricacies that exist on La Isla and the political parties that are there. So Eduardo and I were, were texting, just giving you some context listeners on how this episode came about. But Eduardo and I were texting and Eduardo was like, oh man, you know, I kind of want to like take the deep dive on political parties and the history on La Isla. And I was like, hell yeah, let's bring it on. Let's, let's have you on the show. Uh, and then Michael um, had actually commented on a Twitter post and understandably so, I was not like, I didn't do like a big old thread talking about the statehood referendum. So of course, Michael being the good Boricua that he is, chimed in. Um, you know, uh, we had a, a nice little, little dialogue back and forth. Um, and that was just a reminder to me that, you know, we don't always talk about the intricacies that exist on people's, uh, on people's voting patterns. What's the context behind some of the things that appear on the ballots, which parties are in power, hold on to power. Um, and some of the ways the electoral process lets down people on La Isla. So, um, reached out to, to Michael as well. Uh, and, and here we are. So 
I think the best way to start this episode is to give a bit of context uh, to our listeners that maybe like myself that don't understand the the full breadth of uh, the history of political parties in Puerto Rico. So, Michael, I know you're going to come in. We're going to we're going to try. You're going to we're going to have you come in later in the episode when we start talking about the elections themselves and the statehood referendum vote. Um, so Eduardo, it's going to be kind of you and I, uh, taking the deep dive on political parties, but Michael, of course, you're always welcome to chime in, uh, if you feel strongly about something. Um, but let's go back 122 years, Eduardo, uh, take us back in time. What has been the evolution of party politics in Puerto Rico? I think it's important to review all this, not just because it's, it's, it's useful and, and it's not something that's discussed a lot. Um, but because a lot of, even a lot of the roots of the dynamics that we're seeing in the, the past elections go all the way back uh, to, to 1898 and how the nuances of, of that process uh, of, of party politics, uh, you know, created the, the Puerto Rico political sphere, um, you know, within its territorial system. Uh, because it's very different, whereas in other U.S. territories, uh, parties have a like there's a Virgin Islands Democratic Party and there's a Virgin Islands Republican Party. Um, same as with other territories. And while there are some notable exceptions, that has never been the case in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico has always had very distinct parties. And so that all takes its roots back to 1898. Now, what happens in 1898 is that after uh, the U.S. invasion in the Spanish-American War, the political party system in in Puerto Rico is very much geared towards Spain. And there's a major party that supports sort of closer integration with Spain. And there's a party that supports uh, more autonomous rule. Um, while independent sentiments are very much uh, repressed, as seen as in the famous Grito de Lares in 1868, where independence was, was cr crushed. So those parties kind of both keep their structure in a, in a way under U.S. rule, but both shift their focus to eventual statehood, which births the first two parties, the, the Republican Party of Puerto Rico and the Federal Party. Now, both parties are essentially not too ideologically distinct. They are just really based upon the leadership of two leading men, Jose Celso, Jose Celso Barbosa and Luis Muñoz Rivet. Now, that that's the sort of the first stage of party politics in Puerto Rico is just everybody's waiting for statehood like it'll happen it like or at least the process towards becoming a territory because there had never been anything different right as the U.S. had expanded into other places within the the, the continental U.S. it usually it just happened the U.S. got control of a territory the people got together they formed a territorial government and eventually it became states. So they were just hoping, well, you know, once the military rule is over, we'll form a territorial government and then we'll be on our way. Now that doesn't happen because in 1900, uh, the US Congress adopts the Foraker Act, which imposes a government on Puerto Rico. And so the parties begin to shift. The federal party, while the Republican party still maintains its uh, focus on statehood, the federal party begins uh, to be disillusioned. And along with a disillusioned contingency of the Republican Party forms what's called the Union Party, which dominates uh, Puerto Rican politics until the 1920s. And when I say dominates Puerto Rican politics, of course, the only body that the Puerto Ricans could vote for was the lower chamber of the Puerto Rican legislature. The upper chamber, which was no, uh, which is like our the Senate and the governor were all uh, federally appointed. 
So the only thing that Puerto Ricans could elect until 1917, when we finally had could vote for our uh, senators, were that house. And so the Union Party, slowly as as this military regime passes and then the Foraker Act regime passes, Puerto Ricans on the island realize that this is happening differently. This is be- this is becoming colonial. This is not a transition towards statehood. And so um, the Union Party begins to drift and abandon statehood and sort of is an agglomeration of people who either support independence or some form of autonomy under the under the under the U.S. protection. Now that period is is fraught with a lot of uh, ideological ambiguity because uh, since the parties don't have a lot of local power and they ha- don't have really a lot of power to influence Congress, these divisions are very malleable. Uh, and we'll see that that evolves because later in 1924, the Republican and the Union Party join up together to form La Alianza to combat the rising of a new Puerto Rican Socialist Party. And so we can see that even these two parties that were like enemies have no qualms about joining together for political gain. And of course, this is very, it's a lot more complicated than this. And I'm I'm summarizing like 100 years of history in like seven or eight minutes. Um, But what what it's meant to show is that throughout this, Puerto Rican advocates are trying to get attention to Puerto Rico and trying to um, get Washington, D.C. to pay attention. But local divisions on the island are more about personalities than they are about strict, you know, definitions of like being a very strong supporter of a, a, a status like like how it would later become so what ends up happening is that after this period where la alianza turned it becomes sort of dominant from 1924 to 1932 then uh it the alianza basically breaks apart of these old unionists and republicans and so republicans then join up with the socialists to create what's known as la coalición which is which is uh, and it, which is a wild thing to to think about. There was a Republican Socialist Coalition that ended up governing Puerto Rico for eight years. They won the 1932 and 1936 elections. Um, and this just goes to show you be, this this happens because Puerto Rico politics are so status centric that uh, and, and because parties aren't really that ideological that even the Socialist Party wasn't all that socialist and the Republican Party wasn't all that Republican. But because they both supported statehood they could make common cause. Now, the old unionists of the Alianza end up forming with the, the Liberal Party because they can't readopt the union party name. So they just rebrand as the Liberales. And so basically it's the Liberales versus La Coalición from 1932 to 1936. Luis Muñoz Marín, uh, who ends up becoming a seminal figure in Puerto Rican politics, joins El Partido Liberal, the Liberal Party, and begins to cause strife because he's such a he's such a big figure. He's the son of the old unionist leader, Luis Muñoz Rivera. He's he has a lot of connections in Washington. He's very influential. He's a very charismatic speaker. And eventually uh, it culminates in after the 1932 and 1936 elections where the liberal party loses both elections. There's a there's a rift. Luis Muñoz Marin uh, takes uh, a large contingent of the liberal party and forms the Partido Popular Democratic or the Popular Democratic Party, which is the first of the parties that we still now have today. Um, their, 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 their insignia is the, the, hibaro, the outline of a hibaro face and their, their color is red. Um, and it's initially a kind of social justice party um, 
that is like quasi like it's leader support independence, but they don't really want to make this a like a a, a big electoral. They know that electorally that hurts them. So that while they're all mostly independent supporters, they try to make a campaign focused on uh, social justice and economic uh, reform after years and years of you know economic exploitation from sugar barons and all that stuff. La Coalición, on the other hand, which had won uh the elections from 1932 to 1936 ends up having a split so what we have for the elections of 1940 and this is why i'm, I'm sort of stopping for this election is because the the most recent elections are being compared to the 1940 elections in terms of how big of a paradigm shift they are so essentially for 1940 we have the the, the liberal party breaking up with the people with the popular democratic party being the offshoot the republican party splits up and the socialist party splits up and so all three major parties two of which were in la coalition have offshoots and they would they sort of end up creating is that los populares end up being one offshoot of the liberales the libera the liberal party joins up with both offshoots of the socialists and republicans to form what's known as the tripartite european tripartite puerto rican union which is the perfect example of how imagine imagine if like all parties in a, in a country just joined together. It was, again, this just goes to show you that ideology was very fluid in those times. So essentially we had a weakened version of La Coalición, the tripartite Puerto Rican Union and Los Populares who contest the 1940 election. Now, we also have the leaders of all three major parties also pass away either before or shortly after the election. So I'm highlighting this wow. because it's a, like all these historical uh, you know, every, everything had to line up for what for what ended up happening, like lots of crazy factors. Yeah. What ends up happening, which is the, the punchline, the populares who were a new party, they were only two years old, end up winning the elections. And, and by winning, of course, we couldn't vote for governor yet. So they end up winning control of the Senate and they end up winning control of the House. Um, and they end up winning control of the House, even though they don't have a majority of seats. The, the tripartite union that I mentioned earlier, that sort of weird three-headed monster ends up electing three representatives and they caucus with the populares and so give them control over the local legislature. Now this combined with the new American appointed governor named Rexford Tugwell, who was a real economic visionary, ends up ushering a new age of Puerto Rican politics where the, where the popular party, uh, where the, the populares, they sort of are the, in sort of the, they, they are the ones, the party that's well known for establishing the Commonwealth and Operation Bootstrap and this radical transformation and industrialization, industrialization um, of Puerto Rico. And so that's when really uh, that that party cements itself and becomes, and, and, and really the, the other parties except the Republican party are wiped off. We never hear about the Socialist Party again. Uh, we never hear about the Liberal Party again. Like they, they, they contest some future elections, but never in any competitive way. Um, then the second party that we know today that's that's still present, the Partido Independentista Puerto Ricano, the Puerto Rican Independence Party. So the Populares, after winning 1940, they then sweep 1944. They absolutely, like the, the change that they've produced in Puerto Rico is so dramatic that they end up sweeping the 1944 elections. Wow. And once they're in power, then the independence uh, supporters in the party want to then push for like independence. And by this point, Luis Munoz Marin, who was an independence advocate himself, begins to back away from that ideal and begins to focus on, hey, 
let's focus on the economy first. And, and the clash between those then causes a big swath of, of independent supporters to just say, all right, well, then we're going to form our own party that's going to focus on independence and we're not going to let ourselves be swayed by anything else, including uh, very high up members of the Popular Party, even the Speaker of the House under the Populares leaves the party to join the Puerto Rican Independence Party and basically gives up, like he was second in command of the Popular Party, like it, it was a very dramatic shift. And so that party is created. Yeah. And then basically that th those, those, those two parties contest elections up until the 50s alongside the remnants of what the Republican Party is and they rebrand as basically the, the, the Republican Statehood Party. So where we reach sort of modern Puerto Rican politics is in the election of 1968, where the statehood party splits because there's the referendum in 1967 over with uh, Commonwealth, uh, after the 1952 establishment of the Commonwealth, uh, Commonwealth, statehood or independence. Now the statehood party wants to, uh, the, the president of the statehood party wants to just boycott the vote uh, along with the independence advocates. However, a group of statehood advocates, uh, including the vice president, whose name is Luisa Ferre, decides, no, we want to participate. And so he basically causes a rift in the statehood party and basically causes the statehood forces to actually participate in the vote. And with that structure that they made to, or, to organize the vote for that referendum, again, referendums echo through history, they end up creating the Partido Nuevo Progresista, or the New Progressive Party, which becomes the standard bearer for statehood. Now, a year later after the referendum in 67, essentially the, 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 the Republican Statehood Party empties out into this new Partido Nuevo Progresista, and all of a sudden we have our three major players for the next half decade. The Populares, the Independence Party, and the Partido Nuevo Progresista. And so 1968 is when really the, the bipartisan uh, political system is established, because for the first time, the Populares in their history since 1940, they lose an election because of an internal rift that is, is dramatic and really real cool, but we can't get into it right now. They lose the election and the, the Partido Nuevo Progresista wins and Luisa Ferre becomes the first governor of, of that party in 1968. And ever since then, uh, they've been, uh, the, the Populares and the Partido Nuevo Progresista have been alternating the governorship and control of the legislature with the independence party always gathering some minority between uh, two and 6% of the vote. And so that's how we get to the modern era of, of Puerto Rican politics. It's interesting to hear the, about the different rifts. I mean, I'm curious to hear how you did your research on these political parties. If there's anything that maybe you came across in your research that you think people listening, if they want to take a deeper dive, because I know we just kind of did like a Puerto Rican political parties for dummies session right now. Right. Um, yeah. W what's been helpful for you in your research? Sure. Um, I'd say that the two main sources, I guess, are Historia de los Partidos Políticos de Puerto Rico by a guy named Reese Bothwell, and also uh, Partidos Políticos Puertorriqueños, or Historia de Partidos Políticos Puertorriqueños, which is by a guy named Bolivar Pagan. It's a two-tone volume of the history from 1898 to 1956. Uh, and it was actually written by uh, the head of the Socialist Party in 1940. So it's by, it's by a person who lived... Uh, to live through it, so of course it has its biases, but but it's, it's but his, Puerto Rican historiographers have generally given it decent praise. That while he certainly omits some embarrassing stuff that he did, for the general part he tends to be even-handed. And so Reese Bothwell and Bolivar Pagan are great sources. 
um, for the history of Puerto Rican politics. And and I came across it because for undergrad, I did a, I did a like a like a almost a quasi thesis on Puerto Rico's economic history, mm-hmm. and so focusing on 1898 to uh, 1950, 60ish. And so because of that research, I ended up diving deep into what political uh, forces, uh, you know, inf- influence the economy. Yeah, when you get a chance, definitely shoot me a text of the name of those of those uh, books. Um, I definitely yeah, we'll would want to put those in the show notes. I'm assuming they're not available on ebook, so I can't link to anything. <laughs> um, but we can definitely throw that in the show notes so people can absolutely. Look it up. Um, so you brought us from um, early on uh, towards the the beginning stages of U.S. rule over La Isla. You brought us to the the modern day. Let's talk about let's talk about the present. So, looking Joshua, at, oh, can I please. Jump oh, please go for it. Yeah, no, I was just um, one thing that um, I think it's an important part of the story, especially in the very turbulent and complicated '40s and '50s uh, with relation to the Puerto Rican Independence Party, um, is that it did have, um, you know, compared to what it's had in the last thirty, let's say, thirty or forty years it actually had some serious electoral support in like 1952. Uh, By the 1960s, the support for the Puerto Rican independence drops really dramatically and it gets to the figure of being, you know, between three and 5%, which we've seen for the most part um, since then. But I think just as as a little bit of context on that front, the role of, you know, I mean, later on, we would find out pretty substantial FBI surveillance of the movement and repression of the Puerto Rican independence movement generally. Um, yeah. Of course, the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party um, and other groups, but of course, spilling over to the Puerto Rican Independence Party. I think it's an important sort of bit of context. Yeah. People always wonder, they're like, oh, you have these, this essentially a two-party system. Um, and then there's this, this, this like Puerto Rican independence party, um, but it has a, a small amount of votes. And so I think just for folks that are not familiar with the history of repression against Puerto Rican independence, right. like and other things, uh, which sets a context in which the development of support for Puerto Rican independence party or Puerto Rican independence more generally um, was a, a, a severe uphill battle uh, to establish that. Um, yeah, so I just think, mm-hmm. you know, the parties were in, were in some ways also in very different sort of political position, also geopolitical positions as we enter the cold, you know, the 1960s. Um, but yeah, yeah, just wanted to add that. But Eduardo, yeah. thanks for that for that history. Yeah, yeah, no, and you're absolutely right. There's tons of like really important things that like I would have made this like 30 minutes, but you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a that's a it. it the independence party essentially before that independence supporters and autonomy supporters would often like be in the same party because they both saw each other as essentially trying to get to the same goal it's Mm -hmm. it's when it's after 1946 uh and and the emergence of the independence party that that then the independence forces uh begin to sort of strike it out on their own and they find it hard uh not only electorally but with because of repression and because of uh spear campaigns and but it, of course it's important to note that in 1952 they were in fact the second largest party uh to get votes in puerto rico hmm. 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, these are all really good points. I mean, just if I could throw one little example in there too, even looking at something like La Ley de la Mordaza, where it was illegal for us to yeah. wave our bandera, to have our bandera, we'd get arrested if we did. Um, we've mentioned, we've talked about that one on the, on the show a, a few times. Um, and it, it's really making sense, putting that into context with what the current political landscape was in Puerto Rico. Um, and Michael, you, you mentioned, you know, FBI monitoring, uh, the U S, uh, constantly having a habit of meddling in, uh, the affairs of other, of other areas outside of the, the States. It's really interesting. I didn't realize that we saw a height in political in the the independence party in Puerto Rico uh, in the fifties. I thought we were seeing kind of like a, a suppression of that in that time. So really appreciate it. You you know cracking open cracking open those books and and doing the deep dive with us. So Eduardo, you you took us to the beginning of U.S. rule, fast forwarded us to present time. Um, let's talk a little bit about policy proposals. So you made a gr- you made an interesting point about how there was um, some across the aisle bipartisan um, per, uh, per, uh, collaborating uh, yeah. to, to to try and get things done. Um, I'd imagine, especially looking at the results of this last election, uh, there there's a bit more friction. Um, sounds like there was a buildup to a bit more friction in the lead up to, um, 2020. So, um, if you could, uh, break it down for us, you know, how would you describe the focus of, of, um, how would you describe the focus of policy proposals by the political parties in PR? Um, you know, what are they putting forward right now? How, how are they distinct from one another? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and I think it, it it brings you back to sort of like the recent the recent history and how before, like I mentioned, a lot of parties rose up and were basically status centric. Um, and while they did hold like policy positions, and like I mentioned, the populares early on were very uh, strong on social justice. Um, those lines blur because sure, the populares were big on social justice, but also they began this period of giving mass tax breaks to to American companies because industrialization was above all. And so there wasn't like this ideological purity. And so to bring us to the present and what, what recent uh, developments have been happening. So since the, while there had been like new parties throughout history, most new parties were either ca- like caused by like ideological rifts, like the Independence Party, or by personal rifts. Uh, in 1968, the rift between the populares was a, was a rift between leaders, not necessarily a rift under policy proposals. So 2008 brings the brings a like a really strong first legitimate force to build a party that's not status centric and wants to actually build itself primarily on policy proposals mainly on like environmental and economic stability. And that's the party the Partido for Puerto Rico, the party for Puerto Rico essentially. And they they're their their color is orange and they had a coqui symbol. And they ended up and they end up doing better than the independence party. So it ended up sort of becoming the third party from this party that's long been competing. So that's the first hint of like new ideas and policy proposals beginning to influence uh, 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 the Puerto Rican electoral system in a bit more, uh, you know, in individual sense, you know, separated from status concerns. What then the 2012 elections bring two new parties. So overall there's six parties now, the three that we talked about, the, the Partido for Puerto Rico, and then also the Movimiento Unión Soberanista, which while it is a, a status party somewhat, 
Um, it is not born out of ideological rifts necessarily. Uh, and then the Workers' Party of Puerto Rico, which is born again not out of a status and and supports like and, and has members from all uh, status preferences, but wants to work on like workers' rights and a broad and a broad sort of swath of maybe center left to left wing issues. Um, and so then in 2016 we see a new evolution of, and, and, and so party share, and all these are like experiments of, of Puerto Rico with different new parties and, and new ways to understand politics and policy. In 2016, what we see is the rise of independent candidates. So while most other parties except the Workers' Party, uh, you know, pass away, um, two independent candidates, Alexandra Lugaro and, Man and Manuel Cidre, gain a lot of attention and because they're independents, while a lot of their appeal does stem from like charisma and what they bring forth and, and you know who they are as people and their track record, what's really front and center for them is a lot of nuanced uh, policy issues that aren't really discussed before. Like there's a there's big controversy because Alejandro Lugaro comes in, out in favor of, for example, marijuana legalization. And so a lot of this, this individualistic nature, while it does sometimes tend to sort of like better you know personality cults and 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 uh and that kind of thing it it, it didn't have that uh, dynamic necessarily in puerto rico and those two independent candidates end up getting 11 percent and around six percent of the vote respectively uh alexander lugaro and manuel cedar which is unprecedented like or, or like let me say that again which is not heard of of a third of a third party getting that number since 1968. So again, we're, we're so that's really seen as like okay, things are radically different, um, and that's what brings us to then that was 2016, and then in 2020, what we're seeing is um, uh, new parties, a revitalization of old parties, principally the Partido Independentista Puerto Ricano, and. Because of the economic crisis that's been going on in Puerto Rico since the early 2000s, these debates about status are having less and less of a pull on people. Mm -hmm. I think, I think, and this is sort of like, this is up for debate, but I think primarily because they don't see the status changing much while the financial crisis is ongoing. They don't see mm -hmm. either independence or statehood or any other change pretty much feasible. And they're kind of noticing that because of focusing on status politics, the actual like job of governing well was sort of swept aside. Um, and I think that's really influenced uh, people to really rethink this party paradigm uh, and, and start to uh, note that, yeah, that while everybody knew that party politics in Puerto Rico were status centric, um, it, we're starting to see what the harms of that were. And we're starting to see uh, Puerto Ricans demand more accountability, and and so we're that that's kind of like what I think are the seeds of what we're going to talk about later in in 2020. Um, but just as an example of of how loose policy proposals were under uh, the status centric system, uh, the the statehood party, the Partido Progresista, elected a really like center left governor from the 90s. And like with a, with overwhelming majorities, they, he won electorally widely. He established like you know wide healthcare and um, established really uh, big public works projects and 
and like I said, like all, like practical universal healthcare. Um, okay, let me let me rephrase that. Not universal healthcare, but a significant expansion uh, for healthcare for the poor. While and then in two thousand eight, with a with a strong electoral showing, they elected kind of the opposite, kind of a kind of a self-proclaimed Republican. Uh, you know, lowering taxes, uh, increased uh, tax benefits for American investors, kind of the complete opposite. And, and, and it's not even sort of questioned at all. Like the discourse isn't really seen. I think things like that, uh, that seem contradictory to somebody looking at it from, from, you know, somebody from here in the US where the parties are very distinct ideologically. Um, somebody might see that as, as, as contradictory. I think people in Puerto Rico are beginning to see that too. Yeah, you brought up you brought up a lot of good points. Um, if I'm hearing you correctly, Eduardo, it's kind of like um, here in the United States, where using the Republican Party as an example, um, they whenever they're in debates, um, jockeying for a position, trying to win an election, you know, they try they they normally focus on a handful of issues and they just really drive those home. They have surrogates that are on you know cable news, really driving those those uh, points home. So. Thinking of things right. like guns, um, you know, religion, uh, the debt, you know, they kind of focus on those policy issues, but we don't really see anything come to fruition um, to back up those words. Um, so if I'm hearing you correctly, and hopefully I'm equating this the, the, the properly, you know, on La Isla, a lot of these political parties really hinged on this idea uh, behind uh, or this debate behind Puerto Rico status to the point where that was the focus, that was the messaging, that was the platform, and little attention was being paid to all the other things that go into uh, developing a well-oiled machine of a government. Um, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that in, in broad strokes, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, yeah. I know yeah, that's probably a generalization, just, but I just want to make sure right, I'm, of course, I'm taking yeah, it in. It, yeah, for example, it's not that the, it's not that parties didn't care about policy. It's just that often policy was centered around mm -hmm. status. So, for example, the Commonwealth Party supported these tax breaks because they're only they can only exist under the Commonwealth system, and so they want to use them to gotcha. enhance the 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 attractability of that status. And so, statehood supporters would do the opposite, and they would try to uh, sort of establish closer ties and try to standardize the Puerto Rico's government with uh, with the U.S. and sort of try to uh, you know, maybe limit some of those, those tax breaks in certain instances, not in others, um, to try to maybe assimilate to be more like a state. But again, all those are they are policy positions, but they are the roots of them are, are definitely yeah, at the status level. Hmm. And would you say, in your opinion, would you say that we're seeing a shift from the issue of Puerto Rico status kind of grabbing people's attention in place of issues around the economy grabbing people's attention? Or are we seeing more of a, a culture war um, being the thing that's top of mind for people on and how and who they choose to vote for? All, I, I think both. I think the, as we talk about the 2020 results, I think both can be reasonably uh, seen as, as potential arguments because mm -hmm. Um, the, both culturally and economically, people are paying more attention to to certain issues than, and it, this is not to say that status still isn't important. I mean, clearly, um, the two major parties are like held, still still have strong bases and held uh, and held strong. Um, but but yeah, definitely, it is going to take more than simply advocating for a certain status to get overwhelming Puerto Rican support. This is shown by the fact that. 
while the statehood party got 33% of the vote for governor, this, it, the, vote, the, the statehood referendum got 52%. So clearly there's a gap between like 20% of electors who said they supported statehood who did not vote for the pro-statehood governor, which is, you know, you know, back then would seem, you know, illogical. If you're a statehood supporter, you, you vote for the statehood party. That's so, so certainly the, the hold of status is not over, but it's certainly weakening. Uh, and I think as Puerto Rico continues to, you know, suffer from scandals and natural disasters, I think definitely uh, that that pull is 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 increasing towards towards uh, the economy and towards culture and towards uh, the stability of the future. Hmm. So I don't you... know if Adela would agree with this, but I think um, another sign of uh, the ineffectiveness of the, the major parties, when specifically PNP and Populares, um, is the voter voter turnout and participation uh, decreasing, you know, over the last, you know, decade or so, right? So um, people becoming perhaps, you know, no longer the status question or their affiliation with particular parties being as strong as it used to be uh, to m move them to vote. But I don't know if you if you think Sort of, I mean, for instance, in 20, this election, you know, was was uh, the lowest or one of the lowest in terms of turnout, right? I think it was like something like 51% or something. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you see that as as a as maybe a, a, a symptom of the the de-emphasis on status or people's general kind of um, sort of lack of enthusiasm or support for the existing parties, um, or maybe it's right. a symptom of something else. Yeah, no, I, I think that's definitely a part of it. I think it's a little too early to, it, it's just been so recent, I think it's a little too early to, to, to call. But, you know, if we're talking about historical trend before this election, yes, there was certainly like lower turnout, but uh, because, and, and you, you can definitely attribute that to people getting, you know, bored of the political process and, and feeling like, not bored, but you know, not feeling represented and feeling like it, it doesn't matter. Uh, people will govern ineffectively no matter what. And, uh, but I also think, I think there's been, some people have talked about issues with, uh, with, for example, there, there might be a, a pretty strong inflation of the voter rolls in Puerto Rico because there's just so many people who moved in the past eight years and who maybe like register or maybe either haven't registered to vote wherever they are or, uh, if they did, they they haven't you know the, the they haven't sort of canceled their registration in Puerto Rico. So there's some concern about you know voter rolls being a, a bit uh, large and also in COVID, like the the capacity for early voting and uh, and mail-in voting was very insufficient. And so some people also you know claim that while you know older voters are usually make up a large part of the electorate, uh, you could argue that they either couldn't have didn't get access to um, mail-in voting or, or early voting as, as much as they they could have and there's there's currently a lot of um, controversy surrounding as they count ballots because mm -hmm. uh, the process of how they handled those mail-in and early ballots is uh, was very it was very messy and, and, and the ramifications are so I think all those things put in a blender are, are a reason for the low turnout for sure or like for the low turnout numbers um, that we see in this election <laughs> We're going to take a quick pause for the cause, pero no se muevan, porque when we come back, we're going to talk to Eduardo and Michael about the Puerto Rico election results, ballots being discovered well after Election Day, the statehood referendum on the ballot, the PR Self-Determination Act, and a whole lot more. Stay with us. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. 
When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. Let's go backwards a little bit to last week. 2020 Puerto Rico elections took place. Uh, Eduardo, can you set the stage for us in the lead up to it? I know here in the United States, it feels like people start running for president 10 years in advance. Um, but, you know, if we got to go back uh, to 2019, 2018, let's not go back too far. Um, but can you give us the, the breakdown of, you know, what was the lead up to these 2020 elections? Right. Well, of course, we are living in a post uh, renuncia age, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, so you kind of saw a resurgence of, uh, I guess, parties trying to like distance themselves from other people and trying to really stand out. And so for the two major parties, you saw um, uh, for the pro-stater party, you saw uh, Pierluisi, who was a big factor in that whole situation, sort of try to come out and be this new figure and he's young and he's fit and he's um and he's really trying to consolidate that base of the of the uh, no no partido no while also trying to attract uh new voters uh same with the same with the populares they also they they had a primary which was a bit contentious but ended up being quite decisive and, and their candidate was also trying to uh you know they were both running on these like no we're going to be we're focusing on good government um we're going to change the way things have been done in the past not that that rhetoric was any different from other elections, but certainly in the wake of, of, of 2019, that rhetoric was certainly a lot more front and center about being different than the ways of the past. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the stage for the two major parties. Uh, not, nothing major different in terms of policy proposals. Uh, the real difference makers are the, the three non-major parties. So the Independence Party, uh, fields again uh, Juan Dalmao, who was their candidate for governor in 2012. But he he brings a very a, a far more modern campaign to to this election, while in other elections, people saw that the Independence Party as maybe being a bit elitist or maybe being a bit out of touch with the common folk. Uh, Juan Dalmao ran a very strong grassroots campaign and online campaign and was seemed like a lot more down to earth than, than the usual uh, Independence Party candidates. He just has a lot of credibility for, uh, for his activism, for his work as a senator, that uh, caused a lot of enthusiasm around him uh, as, as people saw the sort of same options with the main parties. And essentially they saw, while they may, might not have been independent supporters, they saw, well, 
I can just vote for my status preference in the plebiscite, but mm. I can vote for governor for whoever I think is going to be the best governor. And I think uh, that that caused a huge spike in 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 his in his voting rows, as well as a, a big youth surge of, of of young voters who are predominantly or, or who tend to be more independent supporting than than the rest of the electorate. The second major force that we saw is Proyecto Dignidad, uh, who is a a very culturally conservative religious party, um, you know, uh, a pro, a explicitly pro-life, uh, anti, you know, uh, education with a gender perspective and, and teaching sexuality. Um, and so they they grow out of this sentiment where the, the, the conservatives usually tended to vote with the statehood party, but they felt that the statehood party kept making promises that they would, wouldn't keep when they got elected. So Proyecto Dignidad rises out of a very expansive network of churches and religious communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they were heavily underestimated uh, because they didn't, you know, you didn't see a lot of things on social media. You didn't see them get a lot of press. But the thing is, like, they had a huge network because, you know, what, you know, you meet, you meet every, you meet every Sunday. So um, that, that helps a lot for your party building in any case. Um so that's the second, and then the third major force was Movimiento Victoria Ciudadana. Now that move, that that party comes together, uh, centering around a lot of leaders uh, among the Puerto Rican non-political fringe, as well as uh, the candidate Alexandra Lugaro, who got 11% of the vote in the previous election. So she becomes their standard bearer and their candidate for governor um, for uh, for 2020 as well as there is a, a very popular uh, a very he is popular but all, but also was a popular uh, representative named Manuel Natal who d- defects from the popular party and joins this new movement and he runs for their uh, mayorship of San Juan which he I believe current results show that he lost very narrowly um, but so th- those are the two major political figures of this movement which essentially runs on a platform of we are we are an anti-colonial group like while we're not status centric we are they basically everybody except commonwealth people they they welcome statehood supporters they welcome independent supporters we just want to come together on a serious process and whatever comes of that process our individual members can support but we're coming together despite our disagreements to focus on a process um and then aside from that they are broadly center left left leaning focusing on on uh restoring Puerto Rico's economy, justice for pensioners, um, and other sort of broadly left uh, social policies. So those, those are the three major non-major, those are the three non-major party forces that, that you know, compete in, in 2020. Yeah, that Movimiento Victoria party, the, and that like kind of like uh, almost like the equivalent of the uh, religious right uh, party, uh, yeah. fascinate me. I mean, the, the, those two just kind of popping up in the lead up to this election. Um, you know, I, I, have said on the show before, like here in the United States, I'm very much a, uh, a proponent of having multiple parties run. Uh, cause I just think there's just too many nuances to right. where people stand on the political spectrum to realistically fully like be all in for one party or the other in a two party system. If I'm remembering correctly, this past election in Puerto Rico was the first time that Puerto Rico's two main parties historically received a large percentage of the vote, actually failed to reach 40% of the vote 
historic in many ways. Looking at the Movimiento Victoria party, uh, looking at some of the candidates that they ran, how close they came in some of these elections, the races that were won. Uh, we shared on our social media feed that there was four elected officials that were all part of the LGBTQIA plus community. Now, I don't know if they all ran underneath that party, but I know the um, there was at least one. And that was the first time in, in Puerto Rico's Congress in their Senate history that this, this has happened. So a lot to be proud of, a lot to break down. What would you say was the biggest surprise to you in these 2020 election results? What stood out the most to you? Um, a lot of things for sure. I, so just, I think, I think the stat was, I think this is the first time that the two major parties didn't, neither of which overall got the most amount of votes here. The, if you combine all the non-major parties, their total is bigger than either of the Mm -hmm. two major parties. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but in terms of what surprised me, uh, this is just like my, my own, my own take Mm -hmm. on it. Um, I did not expect that many people to vote for either of the of the of the third party candidates. I thought, mm-hmm. I, th- you know, I thought that there was going to be a lot of pressure to because there always was. I mean, even in the past elections, you saw a lot of effervescence among these new parties. But you know, something I did mention in 2012, we had three new third parties, but none of them cracked one percent. Mm-hmm. So the history previously of like new parties was not great. And so I didn't expect there to be such a large outpouring, especially because this is a system that doesn't like allow for many parties. So, so you're, I, I agree with you that I think multiple parties are healthy for a democracy, and, and they, they sort of force uh, coalition building and force unity in, in like or, or force governance to like try to govern in unity. Uh, a, a system of first past the post voting, like in the U.S. and in Puerto Rico, kind of pushes people to two main. Uh, just for pragmatic reasons to two main parties. So I think that's why uh, after this election where the current or the governor, the one with 33% of the vote, I think proposals for ranked choice voting or a second round like they have here in Chicago for the mayor Mm. are serious proposals that would be given a lot of attention because I mean, when you have a, when you have a governor that is going to govern on a mandate of like 33% of the people where you have 66% of the people who didn't vote for you, that's probably like the most surprising thing overall when you take all these other elements you know the rise of the far right as a really strong electoral force um the 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 potential rise of a coalition movement uh the potential rise of independence again as a major electoral force all those are huge but i think the biggest thing is that puerto rican like puerto rican democracy has to change um because the current results People, the, the current next four years are going to be quite tumultuous uh, with a governor with such a, with, I think, can you call it a mandate um, with 33%? Mm-hmm. And uh, especially with a legislature that's not of his party. So we're going to have opposing, like a, a divided government with low mandate. That's what's re- that's what really surprised me is the, is, is the, the position, it, the setup that we've now put ourselves in for the next uh, four years is unprecedented. Um, in terms of how many new political forces and and what shakes out is going to, uh, like, what happens in the next four years will dictate the next 30. Will the old parties continue to lose support? Will support shift back to those main parties? I think that's that's what's most interesting to me about these results, about what they entail for the future, because they could entail radical change or or status quo again. You're talking about uh, ranked choice voting, 
Um, you were alluding to uh, runoff voting. So if you don't get, if one candidate doesn't get over 50%, right. you have a second round of elections. Why do you think things like ranked choice voting, runoff elections, I mean, we're talking about 122 years here. Why do you think there hasn't been any new introduction into how elected officials come into power? Well, I think this is a status quo bias. I think major parties don't want to, because when you create ranked choice voting or runoff elections, you are essentially giving third parties a better shot at unseating you. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you know, the major parties have no interest in in that. And so obviously there's that bias and there's that uh, there's those pressures. And also there really weren't any parties that seemed to legitimately present a a, a, a decent challenge. Um, yeah. And so I think those those two main things basically caused the, the issue to not be. That's why this is so interesting, because Puerto Ricans could have, in, you know, used their electoral logic and been like, you know, I know that Proyecto Dignidad is not going to win, or probably not. I know that Victor Asuelana is probably not going to win. They did it. Tons of fascinating things we can break down. Uh, not enough time in this show. Um, unfortunately, and I know we're running a little over time just for people listening that are trying to equate this, who's going to be in the governor's mansion now. So Pedro, Pedro, Lucy, uh, you know, what, what is, what, where would you say he falls in the political spectrum? If you were to compare him to us political parties, would he be Republican, independent, um, uh, Democrat, you know, where would he, where would he fall? Tea Party, uh, uh, Democratic right. Socialists of America. Like, right. what's that spec? I, what's that spectrum? Sure. Um, yeah. No, so he he was our, our resident commissioner, our non-voting delegate in Congress for uh, eight years, and he governor was, for he was five a days. <laughs> governor for five days as yeah. well. Um, but but I mentioned that because uh, he he essentially he was a Democrat for those purposes. Mm-hmm. So I guess I guess he would be kind of like a cent a very centrist uh, Democrat if we're going to put it in, in ideological terms. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like I said, in Puerto Rico, that uh, th- those labels are, are meaningless. So I don't know that that that's going to influence. But he's essentially maybe like a centrist uh, who will sometimes uh, you know who will support policies depending on what he feels will, will benefit his party. But yeah, that's the. Gotcha. And what about what about the Puerto Rico Congress? How it were, how would you say how would you describe where the Senate where the majority of the Senate sits and where right. a majority of the House sits? So again, these are preliminary results. There's currently a lot of controversy about counting ballots, so I'm just basing myself off preliminary results just in case you know the next weeks and months cause any changes. But essentially, not go, not getting too deep into how Puerto Rico chooses its legislature because it, it also has no essence of its own. The House is currently controlled by the populares with a one-vote majority. They essentially have just enough votes to to control the House, while the third parties have four representatives, and then the rest are uh, PNPs or the Pierluisi's party. So essentially, the 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 populares have a very very thin uh, margin. So they will they it's it's thought that they will need to you know really negotiate with the smaller parties and the representatives that they elected to to get to get things passed. Now the Senate gets very interesting because in the Senate no party got an outright majority. The populares are one vote shy of that majority, which means that to get things passed, they have to negotiate with one of the five senators that don't belong to a major party. Um one being independent, two being from Victoria Ciudadana, one from Proyecto uh, de which is the, the 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 cultural conservative party, and then one from the independence party. 
Um, so that's currently where things stand. The populares are in control, but very slimly and will need to negotiate uh, to, to, to form a majority. Uh, so that's where, the, that's where the Puerto Rico legislature sits. You mentioned uh, the election coming under some scrutiny. Um, I shared a link with you. I'm, I know you both have seen it. Um, probably before I shared the link with you, of course, but I was reading this article in El Nuevo Dia um, about, uh, and we mentioned it earlier in the show, about briefcases of ballots being found after they had already declared uh, winners in the in the election. Of course, like you mentioned, Eduardo, uh, you know, data still coming in, votes are still coming in. Um, in your opinions, um, you know, what are your thoughts on how this election was handled? Because if the primary was anything, the news coming out of the primary where ballots weren't even ready at, at polling places, um, I'm starting to lose faith in Puerto Rico's ability to actually run an election. So I don't know if that's governmental incompetence, uh, if there's some intentional things happening behind the scenes. Um, you know, again, like I said at the top of the show, you know, I don't necessarily have a full finger on the pulse of the ins and outs of uh, the political movers and shakers on La Isla. So I would be curious, uh, you know, what are your opinions on how this election was handled? That's it, again, this is something that's like happening just now. And so I, I can't I can't even um, give you like an like an educated position on it because new news keep coming out all the time. Um, as far as we know, the commissioners of all parties that are represented have have all, you know, claimed that you know there there is no fraud. These are mistakes. No, no, there is like n mm -hmm. none of the representatives of all parties have have nobody has flagged any shenanigans um, so far. But the it, it it's getting hard to to understand why this happened and how the incompetence sort of or the inefficiency reached these levels to the point where new ballots are showing up. And I think the latest news shows that they say they finished counting, but they don't know how many ballots there are, which seems like a contradiction. Um, and and it's it's just things were handled very poorly and, and, and completely disorganized. Um, and while it doesn't seem like there's foul play, it, 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 it really does. It's like the perfect microcosm of the, inter the institutions of Puerto Rico clearly just mm -hmm. on their last legs and barely being able to give us a definitive uh, election result. Yeah, no, I, was, I wanted to get your opinions on this. Michael, I don't know if you have anything that you'd want to chime in on this, but um, yeah, yeah I mean, no, please. No, the only thing that I that was was just, a, I guess, a little bit of a trivia is that the Republican Senator John Cornyn um, <laughs> is using this ballot situation to justify the Trump administration's oh boy. Uh, <laughs> claims Damn around voter fraud, right? So it's uh, kind of an interesting wow. um, use of Puerto Rico's situation. Uh, yeah, yeah. It just goes to show you. Yeah, it, it just goes to show you they they listen and they know all the news that comes out of Puerto Rico. They just yeah. ignore it, except until it's like political convenience. Mm -hmm. So that's just a perfect example of of yeah. like. Yeah, we know you read all those New York Times articles. It's just that this one happened to mm -hmm. help you out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, well, point well taken. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, in, in the lead up to the U.S. presidential election, I remember thinking, my gosh, every election, it feels like the last few elections, there's there's always been reports of, you know, ballot machines not working when they when people get the receipt after casting their ballot doesn't have 
uh, certain people that they voted for, uh, you know, long lines. Of course, we have severe voter uh, suppression uh, here in the United States. So I was just curious to, to get any insights that you had. I wasn't sure if this is a product of just negligence and competence or if there was something uh, a bit, um, you know, if there was more foul play involved as a way to maybe looking at some of those municipalities, how some of those districts vote to kind of say, okay, um, you know, maybe we could be a little bit more relaxed and how close we pay attention to actually being as organized as we could be in making sure that there's a smooth election happening here. Um, and point well taken, Eduardo, you know, information still coming out. So we can't make a fully educated um, determination on what happened. But it is nice to know that unlike here in the United States, we have candidates and parties saying, you know, this the don't worry, you know, let, let's let the process work out. You know, yeah. there's, no, there's no, there's not finger pointing. Um, you no, know, uh, the, 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 everybody has conceded. Nobody, right. nobody is refusing to concede at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, so, mm -hmm. so yeah, absolutely. Um, right, correct, correct. So uh, switching gears, switching gears a little bit here. Now, what do you think the next four years look like for Puerto Rico with this current Senate, this current house, this current governor or new Senate, new house, new governor? So I think the main dynamic that's going to be played out is how does the oversight board uh, behave? Because now that the government is divided, uh, there's going to be contradictory uh, attitudes towards the board. So I think the oversight board is going to have a lot harder time negotiating with um, with uh, with the divided government, mm -hmm. which I think is going to be quite difficult considering that uh, the current board members are stepping down and Trump is now appointing uh, new board members who are far more closely tied to the hedge fund community and who will be far less, uh, you know, they will be far less receptive to the needs of Puerto Rico and they will be far more focused on getting the most bang for their buck, which is extremely dangerous uh, for many reasons. Um, and so we have this like a perfect storm of like, this is, is going to be a new more austerity focused uh, board with a divided government that will have to fight it essentially uh, and have to and, and while in the previous administration there was at least some form of negotiation now i think things are going to get really heated uh because this new board is going to you know try to strike down uh, pensions and going to try to uh lower education and health funding substantially and we're going to have to see how opposing sides can they unite to defend, uh, you know, Puerto Rico, or will they will they fracture? And I think mm. that's going to be the next four years. It's going to be how those because it's not going to be just parties competing against themselves. It's going to be them against the board, and and the movements up and down of support between the party are going to be dictated by how Puerto Ricans feel themselves represented mm -hmm. and defended by by these uh, political forces. So this could be a pretty severe bureaucratic mess. Oh, no doubt. Absolutely, mm -hmm. no doubt, um, and I think it, it it might very very much extend because if, if there's if these fights between the the board and the government become stronger and stronger, we're going to see some very overtly colonial things like the the board is going to pass its own budget and and veto all of the government's laws, and we're going to see a lot more. We might we might see a lot more popular uprising, especially if they begin to mess with uh, with the pensions of. of of Puerto Ricans. That's that I think 
will be a real real touchstone, something to watch in the next four years. And also, hurricanes are still the thing, and that's definitely something that we need to keep watching out for in the next uh, in the next four years. How a divided government can is it are we efficient enough to to do a better local response? Because you know, as much as the federal response was bad, the local response also left much to be desired. And so yeah. that's also something else to that I, I want to flag. No, no, good flags for sure. Um, Michael, what about yourself? What do you think these next four years hold for Laila? I mean, everything Eduardo says, I think, you know, one, one other thing that I'm thinking about is the, you know, both of the, particularly the two major parties um, are going to have a lot of soul searching to figure out whether they can stop the bleeding. Um, what are they going to do? So there's going to be the legislative side, right? Um, and how they govern or not govern. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also going to be how do they revive their electoral support? It looks like and what kinds of um, concessions, uh, Absolutely. policy shifts, um, embraces of new means of, of communicating or organizing electoral support. Um, so I think that's also going to be interesting to see as well as um, whether or not, like I'm, I'm, I'm especially fascinated by uh, the Puerto Rican Independence Party's revival. I mean, after decades, <laughs> essentially with the same, you know, percentage of support fluctuating, you know, one or two percentages, um, you know, what, what does, is there a way for them to grow that? Um, or is this just a temporary moment, right? And then some of that support will either flow back into um, the the well, into maybe the populares, those who are willing to do that vote, um, or will um, you know uh, movimiento becomes the you know sort of gets that that support, right? So also seeing, as Eduardo mentioned, you know these these, these really pivotal elections um, where you know, you can see the rise and fall of particular parties, um, but also what's the longevity of some of these developments, right? Um, so that's going to also be really interesting to see. Mm. Yeah, thank you both for those insights. I mean, I definitely want to get, um, yeah, we, we touched on this a little bit about the vote. I want to shift gears from people that were elected into office this past election to this referendum vote. Um, and I know you both have pretty strong feelings on uh, referendum votes in general. Um, and just curious, you know, again, there was this referendum vote for PR statehood. Um, there was, uh, and, and I want to say, correct me if I'm wrong, guys was like 51%, uh, voted for 51% of Puerto Ricans voted in favor of the the referendum. Let me pull up the number, uh, as of like the night of the event, uh, 52.34%. Yes. Uh, 47.66%. Voting no. So relatively close, um, but voter turnout, like you, I believe you mentioned, Michael, was low um, for an island that typically is looking at over 80% turnout rate and where it's an event, you know, days off, no school, no work, you go as a family. Um, So with all that in mind, um, you know, what are your thoughts on this referendum vote? And feel free to give any context that you feel people listening would, would need. I mean, there, there's certainly, I mean, the statehood party and is certainly mobilizing the results of that referendum, of the plebiscite again, as it did in 2017. 
uh, to make a case for that it has a mandate. If it may not have a mandate, let's say for the governorship, um, there's an argument that they're attempting to make that they do have a mandate uh, for statehood. And the thing that I've been, you know, trying to watch as closely as possible is in some ways less the conversation in Puerto Rico, but the way that that, um, that data and those results get kind of worked up in the US side of, of things, right? So, I mean, long before uh, the, the referendum, but certainly after, uh, growing, you know, kind of public statements, op-eds in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the coverage, doesn't matter if it's Al Jazeera, Vox, um, ABC News, this, that, The Hill, um, all of them sort of telling a story, Puerto Rico, Puerto Ricans' favorite statehood, um, without very much context, uh, without putting, um, you know, the, 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 the vote turnout or even the kind of like history, right? So there's a, a kind of um, just echoing the statehood party's interpretation of how we should, should read the results. Um, and so, you know, we've already seen that bubbling. Um, and we were talking a little bit, Joshua, you know, we were going back and forth was um, the way that um, liberals and some progressives, um, parts of the kind of wider democratic um, sphere of influence have, um, you know, begun to voice a greater embrace or support for statehood, mm-hmm. um, often using the results of these um, uh, uh, plebiscites, but also the kind of discourse that came after Maria, you know, mm-hmm. if Puerto Rico was a state, then they would have had two senators, they would have had congressional representation, and therefore um, the, 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 the aid and all of that would have, would, would have happened. Um, but you know, it's it's what we're seeing is at least on the side of some of the Democrats, uh, uh, kind of taking advantage of the statehood position with dreams that it could secure further, you know, cement a Democratic majority in the Senate and in the House. Um, and uh, one of the op-eds from from Ricardo um, Varela, who who's uh, from Latino Rebels, you know, raising the point that here you have. Um, this, this idea that statehood would mean decolonization, sort of in some way imposed by the US uh, that then uses Puerto Rico as, as domestic partisan pawns, mm-hmm. um, which is another manifestation of, of colonialism. You know, um, the conversation in Puerto Rico, I'm not really sure what the, the internal debate is happening there, but I think it's really important, especially for Puerto Ricans in the diaspora to to be sort of keeping track of the conversation as it unfolds in the U.S. and the way that uh, the results of that data get, uh, or the, of the referendum get used, um, you know, to advance uh, a particular reading of how to decolonize Puerto Rico. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought up Julio Ricardo's Verella's uh, um, uh, article, and that there's a subheader in there that I. I really stood out to me um, in the subhead of the of the article it says telling a nation you colonize that you know what's best for them is no more progressive in this century than it was in the last two uh, and I, I to me it feels like that in that one sentence it really encapsulated this issue about the United States and uh, people in the United States especially white liberals 
basically saying, we know what's best for the island. How could you not know that this is the right route for you? You're silly if you don't try to take it. Um, it it's so problematic on, on multiple ways. Right. So I think for context, I think the problem with these, these discussions is that they are fraught with just disagreement. They're fraught with debate over what is valid because Puerto Ricans of all stripes are dealing with a bad faith environment, right? Puerto Ricans, whether they support statehood or not, are dealing with a Congress that is contradictory uh, and that is non-responsive. They're dealing with a, you know, tons of like social and economic hardships and with the political machinations of the U.S. An example of that is how the Democrats would want to secure a Senate majority. And so in, 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 you know, with, with the state of Puerto Rico. So. And COVID. (laughs) Right. So the issue because Puerto Ricans are of all stripes are in that bad faith place, based on all those different criteria, they will form different arguments and they will land on different sides of that argument. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, should we consider turnout in terms of the referendum? But so should we also then consider turnout in the election of the of the governor and of the mm-hmm. like uh, when in terms of like claiming of the certain of who supported statehood because I see a lot of people saying that well actually if you count the people who voted only twenty percent of the electors in Puerto Rico voted for statehood okay so does that mean that only ten percent voted for the governor um, and there's you can have a reasonable disagreement about that um, you can have a reasonable disagreement about the validity of that referendum on one side you can say that hey. I mean, no referendum is binding, not, not even for any state. So to say that that's a fault is is maybe a bit, is an argument not of validity, but of pragmatism of, hey, if it's not binding, it's not going to happen, uh, despite that, say, Wyoming didn't need a binding referendum. So so on one side, you could say, hey, it's non-binding. Uh, the Department of Justice of both under uh, both administrations have already said that they didn't like a vote like this. But you could also say, it is not the colonizer who dictates what the colonized what the colonized choose to democratically enact as their will, right? Mm-hmm. That that is also a very colonialist paternalistic position to say that the U.S. government should determine what is valid. And you could make an argument that the that the democratically elected legislature of Puerto Rico enacted this measure, and so it has a certain validity on that side. So what I'm saying is that in this argument, you could have reasonable disagreements between Puerto Ricans who want what's best for Puerto Rico. And I think that's something that's not highlighted enough because we keep fighting and we keep arguing over and, and discrediting. So the same way that what, you know, that one side will discredit the Puerto Rico self-determination act, the other side will discredit, will discredit the referendum. Mm-hmm. And what that ends up causing is a state of mutually assured destruction. Both sides ensure that the other doesn't succeed. And I think that in terms of this referendum, I think whether we support it or not, I think we need to come out and say whether we support it or not, the reasons why we did, but understand that there are legit, there are parts where, no, I think that it is invalid no matter how you, what you splice it. But there are also matters where 
I will see this, you know, not say that me, but like somebody will see this as non-progressive and the person will see it as progressive. I think we do better when we acknowledge those discrepancies and work together than when we simply, because what I've been seeing here is just a bunch of Twitter fights between uh, statehood supporters and, not, and non-statehood support, supporters where, uh, you know, uh, people who don't support statehood are calling, you know, the referendum like a, a political game. And yeah, there's valid arguments to that. But then the statehood supporters are saying, you guys are neo-colonizers because we're out here trying to democratically vote for statehood and you guys are discrediting uh, our process. And, you know, it just becomes this like never ending fight. So mm. I guess what I would say is my position on the referendum is that all sides need to be listened to. And for a, a, a path forward to make sense, whether that's the Puerto Rico Self-Determination Act or another referendum, we need to get out of, and this is a way I circle back, we need to get out of this bad faith uh, negotiating space. The U.S. government needs to begin to state what, what process they'll deem as acceptable because mm -hmm. Puerto Ricans have been, since 1898, trying to, in different ways, petition the government for change but none of it has ever worked and uh, none of it has made any change. So until we get out of that bad faith place, we're gonna keep having contradictory arguments because we're dealing with, you're, you heard from this Senator this one thing, I heard from this other Senator this other thing, I heard from this Department of Justice decision in 2004 this, I heard from this Department of decision in 1989 this. Mm. So you know what I mean? So we're not mm. even having the same discussion. Um, and so it's it's the I don't blame Puerto Ricans. I blame the U.S. government for causing an environment where we need to have these. There's no solid ground on which to argue because you could mm -hmm. dig up so many statements from. You could dig up that Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush both supported statehood. You could you know dig up that John F. Kennedy supported an enhanced Commonwealth. You know anyway I, I'm I'm rambling mm -hmm. but you get the point. Um, I think yeah. we need to. I think we need to expand the discussion and uh, and introduce those nuances and united push for the Biden administration to clearly state what the process that the U.S. government deems will be valid and acceptable and binding, and then see if Puerto Ricans agree that that process is binding, and if we can both agree that that process is worth it, then we can begin to to. Uh, to fight, and whether that's the whether that's the media AOC bill or whether that's another, another referendum, I think we can have a debate about that, and I think we should we should continue to debate that. Yeah, but, I mean, but more importantly, push the U.S. government to to say because us debating it with each other will literally solve nothing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I can, I, I, I can kind of see that. The only, I think. I mean, yeah, the messiness of it is there. I mean, part of it is the the, the nature of of political expedience, right? To legitimate to delegitimate your opponents using the same things that you would use, or selectively, um, and certainly that's not the kind of political environment that you want to address any kind of complicated um, issue. And there's right. certainly um, as Eduardo talked about, you know, that's given us with the party politics, right? A very long and complicated uh, history. Um, I feel uncomfortable though, sort of, sort of putting the, the, the burden on, or not the burden, or 
or you know, saying Biden, what what what's the process you expect first? Um, recognizing that it that for Puerto Ricans to come to some agreement over the process is a complicated and difficult thing, um, and perhaps impossible. But it seems to me that that the the process of decolonization has to start um, with Puerto Ricans. Uh, resolving that. I mean, that's part of the reason why, I mean, I have some reservations about the the NIDIA and AOC, the Puerto Rico Self-Determination Act. Um, but what I appreciate about it is the, the and, and also something that you see, for instance, in the Movimiento um, um, Ciudadana, Victoria Ciudadana, is, is a, a call for a constituent assembly you know, which has been called for before, right? I mean, there's been like ages ago, um, there's been a call for that. Um, but I think this, what we see in the last two plebiscites are not good, f they're in themselves. I find it hard to, to, to justify that they are good faith um, uh, efforts to resolve the status. Um, they seem to me and of course, this is not an objective position that I'm taking, right? I mean, it's an interpretation. Um, they seem as a politically, you know, motivated, let's advance our particular status position. Um, whereas calling the populares, to my knowledge, have, never, have not called for a support for a constituent assembly in the broad sense of it. Um, and so, um, when you decide we're gonna do a vote statehood or not, knowing long before the vote that there is, that's not the only view that people have, automatically that's already, you know, uh, narrowing the discussion and attempting to like force your way into a, a certain conversation. Um, so I'm not discounting the, the messiness and the, the convenience and, and trying to find a way to have a space to create um, the, the conversation and the space of disagreement and negotiation that would obviously be needed to move forward. Um, but I feel like the, the current statehood promotion of both the lobbying of, 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 of folks in DC, of mobilizing in very crude and decontextualized ways uh, the results of these, you know, at least contextualize it. You know, if, if you if you're gonna if you're gonna say that this is a mandate or something, at least contextualize it, hmm. give context to it, and if it wins the day, it wins the day. I, I feel like in in these kinds of things, um, I would hope for that that space of coming together, um, but I also think it's a space of of struggle and. You know, from the perspective of, of someone raised here, obviously, I, you know, I grew up part of my life in Puerto Rico, but most of my life has been here. I guess the, the, the question is how to get to a place where people are, I guess, not necessarily casting aside their, their, their views on what should happen, but create a space where they can have some kind of actual engagement. Um, over the status question, um, as opposed to the throwing, you know, just critiques or, like you said, the bad faith um, situation. But uh, when you're when you're a majority party, um, 
that's that's dictated a lot of the the conversation around the state about about the status i think um you know yeah i think it, it, everyone's not negotiating or struggling on the same grounds they don't have the same institutional support or political capital and so um i think we got to take that that part into into account as well yeah no and, and michael i know you put together an open letter from members of the puerto rican diaspora to um, really drive home the point that uh, U.S. statehood for Puerto Rico is not a progressive position. Um, so I was curious to get your thoughts because I feel like on the uh, on the independence in the independence argument, um, you'll see a lot of proponents for independence uh, state. That um, if we look at the issue of Puerto Rican Puerto Rico statehood, you cannot directly equate that to the argument for D.C. statehood, where uh, D.C. statehood would be more of a social justice issue, whereas the issue of Puerto Rico's status is more of an international issue. Um, so curious to get your thoughts, you know, why, for people listening, why should we look at the issue of Puerto Rico's status as an international issue and not a social justice one? Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's an excellent question. One of the many debatable points here, right? I mean, so there's clearly um, debate about whether we should think about Puerto Rico as a civil rights issue and whether decolonization can happen within the, the framework, uh, the civil rights framework of the US um, and whether we should think of it internationally. Um, I think, you know, at, at, at a base for me, if you, you cannot have, in my mind, uh, a legitimate process of decolonization when you are in one that's regulated and, and sort of narrowly you know, confined within the parameters of the colonizing power, right? Um, we have international, uh, the United Nations established, you know, a set of ideas of how the principles around how to decolonize Puerto Rico, how to decolonize um, territories, um, and and for me, part of part of keeping it in the kind of civil rights discussion um, is that we're we're unable to see uh, both the kind of historical, a broader historical context of colonialism, but also the the fact that some of what we might imagine, for instance, international law, um, at least my my reading of of that would would involve. Um, thinking about how do you have a vote or how do you have a constituent assembly in the context where um, the US military is present and actively um, surveils where plenary political power is still held by the federal, uh, by the, the Congress, right? Um, and so if you, if, you, if you decide to go the civil rights route, then you don't have to take into account any of those things really. Um, I think when you put it on the international plane, then you already have, you know, legal precedent, uh, international norms to think about um, how to decolonize. Um, and so, you know, the statehood movement, for instance, has been really effective over the last 30 years at arguing that, um, that Puerto Rico is a civil rights issue, you know, for instance, uh, one of their vehicles to do that has been uh, the League of United Latin American Citizens, LULAC, which has a ton um, you know, of chapters. And in the 90s, 
um, when there was a push for, for statehood uh, by representatives like uh, by Young from um, Alaska, uh, you know, these, or, these civil rights organizations were kind of used as vehicles to claim that Puerto Rico is a civil rights issue um, and make it equivalent to like a DC and things like that. But Puerto Rico has its own history, um, culture, language. I think it's a, it's a different thing we're talking about. Um, and so the civil rights angle, um, I think, will entail uh, or necessitates sort of omitting some of that, some of those profound historical, cultural, linguistic, political histories. Um, the issue of repression. There's not been a, 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 a hundred years of, you know, political repression against statehood for, you know, you know, D.C., you know. Puerto Rico has been subjected to that. Um, and so if we do it in the civil rights paradigm, I think um, we'll lose a lot of, of, of that. The PR Self-Determination Act that was introduced by representatives Nidia Velasquez and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which basically is essentially, and, and keep me honest here, essentially calling for a convention, bringing together people that are elected by people on La Isla to represent Puerto Rico, to have this discussion, what is going to happen here? What what how, what is Puerto Rico's path forward? Whether that's Commonwealth status, statehood status, or independent status. Curious, and I know you guys have touched on this um, at points in our conversation, but curious to hear your perspectives on uh, the PR Self Determination Act. You know, what do you think are some of its pros? What do you think are some of its cons? How do you think it matches up to? just having referendum votes on the ballots in Puerto Rico. Um, Michael, if we could start with you, you know, what, what, what's your, what's your understanding? What's your outlook on the PR self-determination act? So, I mean, so as, as, as you might surmise from some of my comments, um, I think it's an important politically, it's an important um, bill um, for a number of reasons. One is that I do believe that there is a, a, a concerted effort um, that has a, a few decades now of growing statehood support and using these referendums as a way of legitimating that um, and essentially wooing um, parts of the Democratic Party and the parts of the Republican Party that are not uh, adverse to having a, a state like Puerto Rico, um, mm -hmm. and so I appreciate it as a as a as a step to say there's an alternative to the the increasing sort of common sense among some policy and partisan elites and players in D.C. and in, you know, so it says you know we don't have to just go with the, like statehood. We can actually create some process where. Um, the other status options are in the play and that sort of puts the, the onus and the legitimacy in the hands of Puerto Ricans. Um, and so I think politically at this particular moment, I think something like that is really um, important. Now I may be overstating, um, it's not that I think statehood is right around the corner or that it's gonna be that easy or that, um, but it does concern me when you start seeing as someone who's not a believer in Puerto Rican statehood, um, seeing um, people who have very little real investment 
in Puerto Rico or very little knowledge about Puerto Rico telling Puerto Ricans or telling each other that this is the way to resolve this issue, right? Um, and so I, I think politically, it's not, it, I think this, this piece of legislation is important as a kind of counterpoint to that. Um, I think it introduces some interesting parts here, like the, the bilateral commission that, that it proposes, um, which, you know, in, in my mind, um, I mean, it, it, the way that it's described, it would be that um, Puerto Rican delegates would be able to sort of um, ask congressional authority to comment and address on particular issues. What do you do with citizenship? What do you do with a whole set of questions, transition? Um, and so I think that's important. And one thing that Eduardo said that I think is, is important is what is that process that is going to sort of bind uh, Congress to act, you know, because um, mm -hmm. it's true, you know, thus far, you even if you could come to some consensus, um, you know, US could say, well, we're not we're not playing along with this, right. So there has to be some mechanism. Um, uh, I think that we're not at the place where Puerto Rico has an actual consensus around that process. But um, I, I think that's an interesting idea. One thing that it doesn't do, obviously, is because it is part of the, the sort of, it's a US bill, um, it's not gonna be fully in line with like, you know, UN protocols and principles mm -hmm. to decolonize, right? So it's, it's not that. Um, so anyway, those are some of my thoughts, but I, I mean, I, I feel like it's yeah. good, good, maybe a good place to start I'd love to hear what Eduardo thinks, though. Yeah, no, I appreciate that commentary. Eduardo, yeah, what about you? Yeah, I think uh, going back to the framework, I think it's one by one, what do, you th what do we think about how likely it is to succeed? Uh, and number two, how likely do we think that we can form a coalition of Puerto Ricans uh, to get together behind this process um, so that nobody feels that a process is being imposed on them? Because then we'd be did the same thing about the critiques of this referendum. It would be like one side imposed the process on the other. So I think we have to look at both of those criteria. Um, so in terms of whether it's likely to succeed, I think it really depends on factors external to Puerto Rico. I think it depends on what the Democratic Party's uh, current attitude is to that process. And I think here's where the divisions begin to play in because there is a contingent of Democratic Party legislatures who, who support the bill and there's also a contingent of Democratic Party Democratic Party legislatures who are very pro-statehood and who uh, don't like the bill. And so here's the fundamental quandary that we have that we're trying to uh, fix with this bill is we're trying to get everybody together on the process because nobody's going to agree on the outcome. We, we, we're fine with that. So how can we agree to a process? And I think it's a good step forward because it's not unlike anything. So we're I think it's genuinely a good faith to try to, it, it's a good faith attempt to try to create a new process because it is unlike any process by which the US has granted independence or statehood. So I think in that, in that sense, uh, it is a good process. It is a good process because nobody can say we're rigging it from the start. Whereas, you know, some state statehood supporters would maybe initially not like the bill because they feel that they're like Texas. They feel like, hey, we have our we have our own uh, culture, we have our own independent, you know, history, 
but we get statehood with a vote just like Texas, just like Wyoming, just like Hawaii. What's I think it's a it's a good step forward because it says, hey, we're not gonna we're not we're not gonna do either of those things. We're gonna come together and we're going to allow the democratic institutions of Puerto Rico to create a delegation and to create it and have Congress do the same and to create a, a per, like a, almost like a permanent structure that's going to work it out until we get this done. And I think that's a really important thing because com, like joint groups like this from Congress and the Puerto Rican government have been done before, but they'll write up a report and then nothing will come of it. I think the fact that there's time limits to, okay, the commission has this time to negotiate these things and put this to a vote. So it's not like this is an either or. It's not like we're going to abandon a referendum. The 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 position the, the bill basically puts it that whatever the commission decides on and negotiates on, it has to go to a vote to to the Puerto Rican people. Right. And so I think it is a good faith attempt uh, to to move the thing forward. And so I I definitely think it has a lot of. Uh, uh, you know, it has a, a, a high prospect. I think that the thing is going to be how can we get statehood supporters to um, to join in, and 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 how can we make this bill better so that they don't think that it's a bill uh, that's moving towards away from the outcome. Because it's like, well, it's, if it's not like Wyoming or Hawaii or Texas, I don't want it because then it might not go the way we want. Mm -hmm. um, which okay. That we can disagree about that, uh, and, and that's a valid argument to have. So I think it's going to be that's why that's why I, I don't think that the I, I think we need to frame it as a compromise bill. I, I don't think that framing it as a well, finally, non-state herders get to come to the table because then state herders would be like, all right, well then this is yours and this is my corner and we're going to divide. I think visualizing this as it is because, like I said, it's it's different from any statehood or independence, and I think the 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 other two precedents for that are the Philippines and Cuba, who are were territories that were granted independence. I think, I think, framing it as that, I think, is the step forward. And and I do think, like like Michael said, it is not perfect. Uh, it, it certainly doesn't address a lot of the colonial under you know underpinnings of the system. But I feel like it's it's it has a lot of merits in in its structure and in its compromise nature. Definitely a lot to unpack. We're going to continue it unpacking as we get through the final counts of this election once joe biden uh enters the white house um hopefully we see some movement um but that's yet to be seen i know one thing is for sure though uh if there are any big developments we want to talk about i know who to call up i know who to dm on twitter to have back on the show uh to break down the latest puerto rico electorate news um, so again, just really appreciative of having both of you here. I know it feels like we just barely scratched the surface on things like the Puerto Rico election, referendum, PR Self-Determination Act, political parties in Puerto Rico. We've covered a lot of ground in our time together, and I know you both have been super generous with the amount of time you've given to have this conversation. For people listening, I originally told Eduardo and Michael this would be an hour conversation, maybe 45 minutes, and we're we're getting into the, 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 late, uh, the late PM hours of the day. To wrap up our conversation, how can our listeners keep up with you if they want to keep this conversation going? What are some social media channels, websites? Um, what what do you what, what should our listeners know to keep up with you? I'm beginning very slowly to use Twitter a little bit more in the last couple of weeks, um, <laughs> so you can follow me, I guess, at at Michael R Muniz, and then um, 
if if you're on Facebook, um, I'm part of a, a project called the Puerto Rican Chicago Archive Project, uh, which is a new project, and you can find it on Facebook. I think it's under PR Chicago Archives. Great, Eduardo. Um, well, my Twitter is Eduardo underscore Ortiz. Uh, I talk about a lot of these issues. I link to, uh, sometimes I write about these issues as well. So uh, feel free to check it out uh, at that handle. Perfect. All right, guys. Thank you so much for being on. Appreciated having you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks to Michael Rodriguez and Eduardo Ortiz for joining the show today. As a reminder, we're taking next week off for the holiday, but we'll be back the following week with all new episodes with guests like journalist Andrew Padilla, alderwoman Rosana Rodriguez, artist and children's book author Adrián Román, and health and wellness expert Costanza Eliana Chinea. But between now and then, I know once you're done listening to this episode, you're going to go back and listen to all of our amazing past episodes with all of our amazing guests, especially our last episode on the Puerto Rican electorate. Lots of good information in that one for sure. Until then, I know this Thanksgiving will be unlike any other we've ever experienced, but I hope you are still able to find joy and happiness during this time. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving and see you in two weeks. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, paseomedia.org, emailing us at paseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at paseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode and see you next week. Cuídate.